Thank you, Grace, and uh, good evening, history lovers and archaeology lovers. Welcome to the latest uh, History Ireland Head School. And I'm your Head School Master, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland magazine. And I assume you're all subscribers. And if you're not, uh, you can <laughs> rectify that omission at the bookshop down at the end. Uh, now, tonight, uh, it's, this has been billed as the, the, the clash of the ages. Uh, history versus archaeology. Uh, is it like Neanderthals versus Homo sapiens? Uh, and I, I quote... The difference between history and archaeology is the difference between Neanderthal and Homo sapiens. The latter is more technologically advanced, and the former, although casu uh, casually misunderstood, nevertheless boasts a bigger brain. Yet it is hard to imagine one without the other." Unquote. Now this tongue-in-cheek uh, observation is attributed to Bethany Dean, an undergraduate archaeology student at the University of uh, Winchester. But what is the relationship uh, between the two disciplines in developing our understanding of the past? How do they interact, if at all? Uh, to discuss these and related matters, uh, we are joined by Sean Duffy uh, of uh, Trinity College Dublin, uh, Matthew Stout uh, of DCU, so the, these are our, our, uh, our historians on the panel, and then on my right, uh, Ian Doyle, uh, who's uh, a, a, an archaeologist with the Heritage Council, and then on the far right, uh, Geraldine Stout, uh, no relation of Matthew. Well, actually, she is, she's his wife, and we'll come to that later as well. Um, you know, yes. The number of archaeologists who are married to historians, that, that we will Nobody touch on this. We'll touch on this subject uh, later. Um, now, before the row starts, let's get some <laughs> definitions here. Sean, uh, in about two minutes, you know, how would you define the discipline of history? History, right, a nice easy question to start with, uh, Tommy. They always are. Right, history. Uh, well, I mean, I suppose most people think that history is the study of the past, but I think if you think about it a little bit longer, it's actually the study of the traces of the past that have survived to the present. And that includes everything, I suppose, therefore, that has survived. So that includes archaeology. So archaeology must, by definition, be a branch of history, of the historical profession. A minor branch and subordinate branch, obviously, <laughs> of, of what it is that history is. I, mean, I don't think there's anything controvertible about that. That seems to be fairly um, straightforward. Now, we tend, as historians, obviously, to give primacy to the written word. Um, but we do, historians do, of, of necessity, use archaeology, and uh, the best historians are, 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 um, uh, are happy to, to use archaeological material. It's not obviously essential to it. But I think the, the reverse is essential. An archaeologist must know the historical context about which they're, they're investigating. Uh, so, if you look at it, if you think about it in, that, in those terms as well, it is the case that you can be a good historian and never uh, glance in the direction of archaeology, but you cannot oh. be a good archaeologist and, uh, and be ignorant of history. You let them speak for themselves, Sean, right? You just... Yeah, yeah, that's, that's my view. <laughs> Ian, right, how would you define, then, the discipline of uh, archaeology? Because it seems to me it's this non-specialist. I'm, I'm on the history side of the, the, this... Uh, uh, this debate, um, but um, it's a much more recent discipline. I mean, is it, you know, isn't it, or is it? Oh, um, Have I got that wrong? Well, the, you, you, it, it, it emerges at the same time as the Enlightenment in the 18th century. The first code of legislative protection for monuments is Napoleonic France. But a little so bit after Herodotus, though. By a few Herodotus centuries. Herodotus very interested in the yeah. past, too. <laughs> um, but... Um, I, I, I dispute this, this complete and utter extreme division. I, my first degree is in history. My later degree is in archaeology. I see them as two sides of the, the same issue. Um, um, it's all about the past. And it's all about your dark past. And if, if, if you want a, t a standard textbook definition of archaeology, it's the study of human activity through the analysis of material culture. I could sneakily say that that material culture can include the written record. Um, Absolutely. And, the other point that strikes me tonight is we're talking about Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. It does a little bit of disservice to the Neanderthals. Um, I didn't say which was which now. <laughs> no. I know that. I know that. But there are, from, from archaeologists, would you believe um, there is recent evidence pointing to Neanderthals um, engaging in ritual, burying people, 
there's also evidence pointing to them developing cave art. Um, so maybe they've got a bad press. And the clincher, um, they were clever enough to interbreed with Homo sapiens. There's about 2% in all of us, there's about 2% Neanderthal DNA in Homo sapiens. They're archaeologists. That's They're happened in history and archaeology as well, hasn't They're it? Yes. All of us, Sean. <laughs> and then I would say that this building itself, over the course of mm. the night, if you look around it, will demolish any argument between mm. history and archaeology being separate, because this building represents mm. the fusion of all of those. Mm. Well, the, first, the first lecture I got in archaeology, and the first thing on the blackboard was archaeologists reconstruct how people live through what they left behind. And as far as I'm concerned, that includes not just the broken pots, which they did break a lot of dishes in the past, okay? Buildings, lands, and books. So we're very happy to have a historian as part of our team, but I'm, you know. Now, can I just throw one thing in here? Because um, life in the universe is, is a dynamic, moving thing. Archaeology, on the other hand, is pretty static, right? <laughs> um, how do you respond to that, Ian? Like that, that, Sorry, that archaeology is that archaeology. It seems to me is 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 somewhat static. Lacks that dynamism of the very subject it is studying. Oh, I completely refute it. Um, it's never been a more exciting time to be an archaeologist. Um, you only you only have to think about the kind of new technological advancements, genetics, DNA, um, digital data to to even look under the ground before you do anything at all. Um, evidence of diet. Um, it has never been a more exciting mm. time. And archaeology is really at the crisscross of the humanities and the sciences. It's pulling information mm. from all kinds of separate areas. It's rapidly evolving, and it's actually getting really difficult to keep up with. Mm. Can you say that about history? Can I say <laughs> something there? That that's one of the faults of archaeology, is that there's all this vast range of evidence that the archaeologists just get obsessed with the detail. It's all woods and no trees or all trees and no woods and they very rarely can construct a full picture of what's happening in the past because of the because of the their discipline demands this attention to detail oftentimes losing what's really important about the past is, is trying to reconstruct how people live not just re, not just fill out record sheets and the, just in contrast to that i would just say the great thing about archaeology is that it's a it's very <coughs> social and that Usually, um, it involves a team to, to, to reconstruct yeah, the story. Yeah, let's talk about that. That's, and yeah. yeah, it's exactly. You're not just dealing about one individual in his comfortable office, probably in his leatherette seat with his cherry decanter beside him. Uh, <laughs> See, it's tough his, at the top. Re reading his, with one individual reading this document, you have a whole team of specialists working what, what towards conclusion, just squeezing all that information, getting that very last drip of information be able to tell the story. Okay, can I, would you mind Tommy if I asked Geraldine uh, a question? Suppose Geraldine, you go out tomorrow and you excavate a site. Mm, yes. And you are the, the site director and you dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and you dig all the way down till you get to the bottom and then you drop dead. Hmm. Now, what have, you, what have you succeeded in doing? You have destroyed, yeah. you have destroyed the evidence. Yeah. Well, actually, so when I sit down to do my work, yeah. I go into a library and I read, I read the historians use primary sources, documents. And we go into the library and we read them. And if when I read them and I write up my stuff, if I drop dead during it or after it, the materials are still going to be there for the next generation of historians to look at them and to re-examine them. Mm -hmm. But we are prisoners, all of us are prisoners of whatever archaeologist happens to have investigated a site. And if they're a good archaeologist, okay, they might have mm. done a good job. Mm. And they might have left sufficient material, uh, sufficient analysis and stratigraphic mm. reports and so on to enable that material mm. to be reinterpreted at a later date. Mm. And, some, and obviously people try to do that. But it is largely controlled destruction of its nature's destruction. Well, I, uh, I would argue against that. Yeah, on that, I just, I just <laughs> I just, to both of you. Yeah, yeah. Just, no, the, the, yeah. the point that Sean's making, right, which would trouble me is, okay, with a historian, he has his footnotes and all that, you, you can go back and you can check the thing up, and yeah. the records are still there. Whereas, if the original archaeologist hasn't done a meticulous job of cataloging all the stuff, yeah. Who's to know? What's there? Yeah, well, I'm sure you have poor historians as you have poor archaeologists, but, but most are, if you've been on any modern excavation, you'll know that systematic recording goes on on a day-to-day -day basis. 
and you know you have your contact sheets, you have your field drawings, and they're there as well as you have your finds. And so it's not destruction in that after an excavation you would normally have a whole collection of material which goes into a lot of it goes into a museum. So you're not you're only destroying kind of the binding material that holds those different components together. Ah, come on, you know you're destroying. How do you respond to that? I I think um, just as there are good historians there are good archaeologists just as there are historians that don't put a lot of evidence or emphasis on their footnotes and their sources there are equally archaeologists the same but if done right it's the controlled it's not mm. controlled destruction it's the controlled creation of knowledge mm. um, and uh, there are excavations where sadly that person has dropped dead and that have been written up and have been published, and there are numerous examples mm. of that. Now, I, I, I want to turn the focus back on history here, because oh, you know, yeah, so far other critique <laughs> has been of archaeology, right? <laughs> Sean, right? History, you know, you know, is based on on written evidence by and large, right? I know you, yeah. you, you, other evidence can come in, but 99% of, yeah. of the raw material historians use. The point is, the vast bulk of that is written by the elite and the male elite, so it's all stuff that old guys wrote a long time ago. Yeah. What sort of an insight does that give you into, into what actually went on on the ground? Yes, yeah, it's mean, very limited. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. So that's why I, I always advocate historians trying to uh, reach out beyond the materials that they, they're using uh, in order to, to fold out uh, the picture. On the other hand, if I, is, as, if, I, if I make no bones about the fact that I'm writing about an elite, it isn't a difficult. I mean, if I write a biography of Brian Baru, and um, there is such, there are such things on the market, which I recommend. <laughs> yes, I'm not a placement break. time. <laughs> he was the ultimate elite in his day. You know, he uh, the king of Ireland. So I, I can write about him without having much. Um, uh, much engagement with the uh, material evidence, as, as mm. Ger and Ian uh, spoke about. I mean, obviously, I tried to do that in order to colour out the picture a little bit from the documentary evidence. But primarily, I'm trying to reconstruct the life of an elite individual from sources that are written by members of his circle, mm. by, by a similar elite of literati. Uh, and uh, so, but as long as I, I, I alert the readers to the <coughs> fact that the evidence is going to be limited, uh, uh, that, that's a fact of life if you're writing about somebody who's been dead for a thousand years. Mm. Can I add but to that? I, I have to say, if yeah. you're writing about the, the 20th, 20th century, then uh, your evidence isn't elite evidence, and you're not writing exclusively about, about an elite. Mm. So obviously historians of the 20th century tend to take a much, have a much broader canvas, and that can include material culture. Mm. It won't necessarily be traditional archaeology, but it will be the whole panoply of material culture that has survived from... Well, I you want to come in there? I, I promised, you promised um, that I wouldn't speak about uh, postmodernism, but I would <laughs> like to speak about the Annals School. Ever since the 1920s, and the French Annals School people, uh, proper historians. Could you, could you define that? Sorry, this is red light. Uh, define. Annals. Well, there was a, there was a journal set up in France after the First World War, in which the great French historians, including Marc Bloch, decided that history was not just about documents in the traditional sense of the written word, but history was all documents, all the traces from the past. And since the 1920s, no no proper historian hasn't been looking at all the available evidence to inform their view of what happened. Now, the narrative oftentimes comes from the, from the written word, but all proper historians are using whatever they can get their hands on and don't make those kind of divisions anymore between the written word and the, and the, the physical world. Okay, let's yeah. look at this thing of evidence, right? Because mm. it, it, when you come into the modern period, Sean, right? I mean, if you're look, looking at Brian Brew, uh, your, your, your evidence is pretty sketchy. Like, it's limit, there's a limited number of sources you can look at. Further up, further, the closer you get to, to the, the present time, there's more evidence, right? But the point is, the discerning historian can't deal with all the evidence. They have to make choices, right? Just like if you make a film, you're not going to run the camera in real time, you know? You have to actually edit it. You have to, you have to create some sort of a narrative, right? So where's that balance between kind of creating a narrative you know, uh, because the ordinary, you know, the general history public, in my experience, they want a narrative. 
you know, they want a story, mm. a beginning, a middle, and an end, you know. Yeah. And, and well, you're, I mean, you are, I think you're absolutely right, because I, I mean, people have often asked me in the past of what, what, what is it that a historian is, and I have no doubt, I mean, we try to, to give um, posh, posh definitions of it, but we are ultimately storytellers. Mm. We're, telling, we're telling a story, and we're trying to tell it as eloquently as, as we can. Uh, allowing for our own subjectivities uh, and so on. But um, we are all just uh, storytellers uh, that are trying to reconstruct mm. the past through our own eyes, and we have to be very, very conscious of that. And when I went to university first, about 150 years ago, <laughs> uh, uh, I, like every other See how Irish... See he is. Like every other Irish, uh, <laughs> Irish uh, youth... I, was, I had only studied the, from the late 19th and the 20th century. And I went to study to university to study the 1916 rising, the War of Independence, uh, the Nazis. I love the Nazis. When I, when I say I love the Nazis, I mean I, I love the skits. See the headline in tomorrow's paper. Second World War, that, that kind of thing. And um, so I couldn't believe I went to Trinity and I couldn't believe it in our entire first year it was all medieval history, and I, I, I was aghast at this because there was no Russian Revolution and so on. Uh, but I eventually uh, warmed to it, but I couldn't wait nonetheless to get into second year because that was all modern history. But then I discovered the modern history, you know. You know I remember we had a series of lectures on the Weimar Republic, uh, the rise of Nazism, and uh, they were all, they took as a metaphor the rate of unemployment in the German city of Bielefeld in the 1930s. This was a metaphor for the rise of Nazism. Uh, but it was statistics, it was statistical analysis, because the assumption was that we all knew the story, we knew the narrative. And it was closer to political science than what I would have called traditional history. So in my third year, I couldn't wait to get back to medieval history. You know, I ran <laughs> with my tail between my legs back to it mm. because it was the last bastion of old-fashioned history where you're telling a story and trying to bring re real people um, mm. uh, to life. And archaeology can fit into that. I mean, any historian who doesn't, you know, writes about the past and doesn't wander through the past, visit castles or visit, you know, uh, deserted famine villages mm. and so on, cannot really put himself into that place. Mm. So historians do have to get, engage if they can with the archaeological evidence. But it is subordinate to the overall discipline, which is history. Absolutely. Mm. Can I try to go back to the archaeologists on this, this thing of, of uh, the narrative? Because you guys have a difficulty. Like, how do you... I was going to say, how do you create a narrative out of a hole in the ground, right? Well, I think, you know, sometimes people over-intellectualise, you know, interpretations and narratives. I always think of the people who've been in the past have the same kind of needs and basic necessities as people today. And you think, if you just think it in terms of just, uh, just regular human beings who have to feed themselves, shelter, you know, a roof over their head, rare kids or whatever. They're ordinary people. And the great thing about archaeology is that it's so democratic. You know the way you're, with history, it's all the big names and whatever. But with, with archaeology, it's not either his story or her story. It's everybody's story. And so we can go anywhere in the country and we can kind of create a, a narrative out of material we find. Like it, it isn't easy, but I, I don't think, you know, maybe people sometimes over-intellectualise it. The, the interpretation of is the it just historians are better writers than no. archaeologists? Well, I think, yes. <laughs> Can I quote what John Andrews said to me yes. when he retired? John Andrews, the, the map historian, said to me, the great thing I look forward to about retirement is never having to read an archaeological excavation report again. Yes. <laughs> but surely, but, surely yeah. he was reading the wrong reports. Yes. I'll, I'll, give, I'll, give oh, yes. I'll give you an example, and I'll, let's bring it back to Kilkenny. We'll, we'll, get out of, we'll get out of the Weimar German cities. <laughs> Um, let's bring it back to Kilkenny. A lot of you you'll know the, the shopping centre, McDonough Junction, and you'll be familiar with the famine graveyard that was excavated there. Um, and essentially, I remember visiting it um, 10, 15 years ago, uh, whenever it was being excavated. It was a former workhouse site, and in the course of clearing the site, they found 63 pits, maybe two, three times each pit the size of these tables. And they were filled with the weekly debt from that workhouse and these were 1840 1850 and effectively what they were doing was the people that died every week would be put into one of these pits and it was incredibly it was moving yeah, and what happened was an, an individual um, uh, a New Zealand archaeologist 
published a book on it, and I happened to stumble upon a review of it today in antiquity. It's a world-leading journal of archaeology. This is the Journal of World Archaeology, and it's praising the book he published on it for... Can I just read this out to you? Um, it's through archaeology, and specifically bioarchaeology, looking at skeletons, that we can reveal the lives of this historically underrepresented group, the poor and destitute classes, who largely through Victorian social practice and widespread illiteracy were refused a voice. That's what archaeology can do. Mm. It gives power to those people, the, the, the sources, that the records completely overlooked mm. and who were the detritus of the Victorian period. It's no problem giving those people a voice and making their story come out. Historians, what do you say to that? Like, these are giving a voice to the ordinary people. I'm I just discovered, I'm a, therefore, a new definition, uh, uh, Tommy. History is the study of the past for people who don't like to get cold and wet, whereas <laughs> archaeology And if you think about it, I think it's probably, come on, let's be honest, we know, we know archaeologists who fit this bill. Archaeology is the study of the past for people who don't like to read an entire book. <laughs> well, I do know. Now, I, I emerged from the swamp of archaeology and crawled out onto the dry land of historical geography and then eventually reached the dizzying heights of being in the history department. So I know, I know the story of... I know the story the of... The ascent of man. I know the ascent of man. I know the story of progress, you know, so... Yeah. But I think we're, we're getting much better at writing reports because I think we have, we're, because we, we're getting more and more for, uh, multi facets of information. Before we could only talk about the structures, the features, or whatever. But now, because we're able to talk about the farm, we're getting the, like, say, digging back to if we were able to get, you know, the, all the oats and wheat and barley and sheep and cattle and, you know, and their nutrition. And I think we could, because we, we're able to, we're getting more information and more variety of information, I think we're able, it's easier to tell a more interesting story than it used to be when Can we I, were very much confined by the information we got. Just, sorry, I just want to interrupt the discussion for a minute, just to remind people, you might have a beer in your hand, but you're still at school, right? and you're expected to do a bit of work and participate in the discussion. So if you, if, you, if you want to ask a question, just put your hand up there if you want to, participate, to contribute to the discussion or make a point or ask our panel some difficult questions, uh, please do so. We have a radio mic for that, for that purpose. And by the way, this is all being recorded as well, so, so um, you know, keep it clean. Um, now, uh, Matthew, I want to go to you uh, because you were the author of this book here. Oh, thank you. For which is for sale at the back of the hall. Uh, which is uh, Early Medieval Ireland, 431 to 1169. Um, now, to this non-specialist, uh, this seems a pretty good stab at a, at a, a synthesis of uh, history and, and archaeology. Uh, will you be burnt at the stake for doing this? Uh, and, you know, or, and how did you manage to do it in the first place? Is this the influence of your, your good Well, <laughs> obviously, obviously the, the written sources are fairly sparse and so you have to look at a, so you're a wide desperate for range. material well <laughs> i wouldn't put it that way but one thing i will put and this gets back to my hobby source about the imprecision of archaeologists is that i'm going to have to beat you up you can't you can't get a per, you can't get an archaeologist or an art historian to tell you what date the ardach alices you can't they talk about they talk about terms like uh, the middle ages or the early medieval period and it does and it's it's so ill-defined that, that oftentimes the evidence is illustrative of maybe daily lives, but it's useless when constructing narratives. And this, is, and this is one of the things that this is the book, although there's archaeology in there, that's the book that made me want to be an historian because it was, it was the search for a narrative that, that, that made me concentrate on the, on the written sources and understand how important they were. What other um, uh, sources are there now in terms of, you know, I'm talking about you know, pollen analysis, this, uh, just if you just fill us in on the different uh, techniques being used by, by, uh, by archaeologists and historians. Well, the, the great th I get the, one of the great straight steps forward is the dating methodology, the, the okay. radiocarbon and the dendrochronology, which but has its give own... Give me that word again, run the red light there. Just Sorry, dendrochronology, that. tree ring dating. Okay. Tree ring dating, radiocarbon dating has meant the archaeologists don't have to worry about... Uh, Stratigraphy so much anymore, and they could look more at at, at the at the uh, remains. But you mean they can come out and say something? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, but I mean it's you look at everything. You look at uh, place names. You look at art history. You look at um, uh, uh, of course you look at 
manuscripts and you look at you know everything that you can look at. Just another one I just go back to because you, you've mentioned it, uh, Geraldine, is that the modus operandi of, of archaeologists. Mm-hmm. I mean, are archaeologists naturally just more sociable people? Absolutely. And that's whereas, what, whereas historians yeah, are these kind yeah. of sad, solitary, <laughs> solitary, <laughs> twisted sad. people I like, right. I stuck I, in I, libraries. Right. You're I absolutely right. Historians, uh, historians like to write and archaeologists like to talk. I, think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to beat you up to, John. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but that's what I just, um, I think I read somewhere one, one of the features of of, of Homo sapiens is that they, they, they developed and did so well because they were socially interactive, you know, and that's, that's what makes us archaeologists Homo sapiens, you know, but we, but we need to do, because as I said, we can, we can bring so many tools and specialism, specialisms to a problem, to evidence, and like that's the, and that's again what makes us great homo sapiens. I mean, that's what happened to the Neanderthals. They, did, they didn't develop, they didn't use new tools to be able to advance their discipline. And I mean, that's why historians, basically, you're talking about, what are you talking about, pen and paper and eyes, or what, what's, what else can you bring to a, a document? Yeah, but I mean, I still use, you have, you, you have, you skipped around the basic point that I raised at the beginning, <laughs> in that you are destroyers, archaeologists no, no, are destroyers. No, no. It, is, it is the creation of knowledge, and yes. if, if, if the site is dug properly, it creates a record, a record, it's called preservation by record. Yeah, I was just about to say, this, this, this brings me on. By the way, Sean's wife is an archaeologist as well, yeah, I have just, to, by the way. No, that's like, like being saying you were terminated with great prejudice. You don't, yeah. You're not there, creating a record, there, you're destroying a site. There is a lot of debate over this idea of preservation yeah. by record. The key is that it has to be the basis for the creation of new knowledge. And uh, is, am I right in thinking that this phrase, preservation by record, is that in, in our legislation in this nope. country? That's, that's another Just in point. Practice. In practice. So how can, how can you preserve something by simply recording it? If, so if I, if I go down the street in Kilkenny, there is, a, there is a building there which has been removed to make way for another Lidl or Aldi or whatever it might be because we mm. can't have enough such. Um, and an archaeologist comes in and he digs it and he, d- he, he or she digs it out with a JCB or with a trowel, usually a JCB nowadays. Not a Kilkenny. So he, uh, he, it, it is gone. Whatever was in the ground is gone, but he keeps a record of it. And our authorities tell us this is preservation by record. It is not preservation. It is controlled destruction by record. And it's, I mean, it's whatever kind of Kafka-esque uh, <laughs> committee came up with this. this um, no, but Sean, I mean, this in the real world, though, you can't uh, stop the development yeah. of a town. This is a living town, right? It's been here for centuries and will, yes. will hopefully be here for many more centuries. I mean, the point is they do have to dig the odd hole in the ground here and there. Yeah, so better to have it, yes, a, a record by, by, or preservation by record. Know, better better than nothing. Yes, but we can elevate the... Um, the role of the people who preside over the destruction of that as, as some kind of honourable profession. Actually, most of the mediated through the process. Mediated through the planning process, which is openly... We'll, co- we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. Oh, or, no, okay. just, just grab that microphone quick and get in here before these people start at each other's throats here. Yes. Are there, are there any examples where history had to be rewritten because of archaeological finds? Ooh, Ooh. Sean, have you been found out? Well, that's a very yeah, good one. That's a good question. Yes, I'm going to going to start thinking about that, and I could be I could be here a very long time yeah. trying to come up with a single instance of whether of where history had to be rewritten because of an archaeological discovery. Well, I would like to say about the impact of the Vikings as seen in the archaeological record that I do I'm ashamed to say do refer to in this book. I think that that it's. Uh, it might not be as clear in the written sources, but if you look at the cumulative effects of the arrival of the Vikings that, and, and the demise of the ring forts and the changes of the bone record and the technology, then, then, then that's... Whoops, I'm straying from the historian's yeah, role there, very, aren't I? It's a very good point, though, because it is the case. If you take Viking Age Dublin, I mean, the, the Woodkey excavations and the later excavations that have taken place over the course of the last 40 years or so in Dublin have given us a, a, an immense amount of mm. knowledge. The Vikings of Dublin were an illiterate people, virtually without exception. They've left almost no literary trace. So we historians, I, I study and write about uh, medieval Dublin, and um, 
But I have no evidence for it other than the archaeology. So Sean, I, has I just demolished, the archaeology. Sean has just demolished <laughs> the entire 10 no, minutes conversation. But what I so do far. do just uh, get in there, well, get in there I quickly. use the Irish evidence, the, the evidence of the Irish annals primarily and Irish saga material. But that's, it's not produced by them themselves. And so it's of an alien people looking in at them. So it's overwhelmingly negative. Hence the traditional negative portrayal that we have in Ireland of the Vikings. But it's only because the Vikings didn't leave their own record. So we supplement the story by the, the material evidence that has survived from the excavations, and it is a wonderful treasure. But it was uh, the great bulk of it in the early stages was was destroyed to make way for one of the ugliest buildings in Ireland. Yeah, that's true. The civic uh, headquarters in, in Woodkey. Yeah. To get back question to there. the audience member's question, when we were saying if there's ever evidence of archaeology rewriting history. I think the history of milling is actually a very good example. Cajtos' Life of St. Bridget Day has inclusions of milling in it, and that's dated to the 7th century. For years and years and years, both archaeologists and historians said that the, this has to be a later interpolation into that life. Eventually, most recently, uh, we've had a number of mills that have been excavated. Calatron down in Waterford, we have Nendrum, mm. Little Island. They've all been dated to between 613 to 630 mm. AD. And so all those previous records and written uh, historical and art records saying that milling can't have arrived in Ireland before the 8th century, the 9th century at the earliest, did have to be rewritten because of those archaeological sites. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there. Just, just right. about. Just about. But I if, mean, I may say, though, over here. if I may say though, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, if, if people had paid proper respect for the written sources for the life of Bridget and for the laws, there would have been no question at all that, this, that, mm. that, that there was milling mm. and that all that was firmly and unquestionably mm. established. It was only maybe the archaeologists looking at elsewhere would have gotten the wrong ideas. Hi, can I just suggest that the faculties of archaeology and history it probably just remains more in the universities now rather than in... in keep, keep the microphone to you. I think the faculties of archaeology and history is probably just more in the university academic sense now because in, in, in more recent times and with reference to Matthew's doubts to the Annale School which has brought in the introduction of local, local history and the study of local history and I think a lot of people now can be local historians from their own uh, kitchen tables, if they put on the internet, they have access to all the documents that are being put online mm, mm. from the census returns 1911, 1841 and with reference to the famine uh, famine uh, uh, excavations here at McDonough that the uh, paper sources of the census material can be linked in with the famine material and in fact the new school curriculums does not see this divide and I think the new generation of children growing up will not see the divide between the archaeology and history and they're using landscape material culture in fact modules in the junior cycle curriculum are all based on learning through material culture, looking at our heritage through material culture. And probably what has given archaeology probably the poor relation, I have to say, in the past was it took probably 10 and 15 years for reports to be, uh, to be published. And this probably, you know, th th this did not... Did, and what has brought archaeology on, on the other hand, is so is is digital technology mm. when the face of Neanderthal can be reimagined through a television program, and I suppose television programs, the likes of you know reinterpreting buildings, uh, remains, civilizations, they have all helped connect us with our past, and they might, the 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 viewer or the visitor to an exhibition or reading doesn't see these seam lines between archaeology and history anymore. And can I commend Sean Duffy, I didn't realise I was looking at the man who published the atlases of Irish history, which I think have given uh, the comic kind of version of Irish history where people can interpret history in a different way, away from the written word. And uh, I'm delighted. Thank you. Now, I'll tell you, that raises a very interesting question, uh, which is to the, 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 the consumer, I'm going to the word, but mm. the consumer, the people who, mm. who are interested mm. in the past, do they really care whether the information is coming from an archaeologist or a historian? No. Or, you know, right. So well, I think, well, I think people, people in general in Ireland are very, very interested in archaeology, and I think archaeology gets probably a lot more press than, than it probably deserves in a way. You know, people are, it's, people are 
genuinely interested in archaeology. Mm. And this, I, what I love to see now in the last couple of years is the development of community archaeology, where you've got community archaeologists working in Fingal County Council and around the country, and there's a lot more, there's a lot more people involved. And of course, like Archaeology Ireland has made it a lot more popular as well, as well as History Ireland. Mm -hmm. So it has come out to the people. And certainly the, ti the, the Time oh, Team, that programme did more for archaeology, I think, than, than we, anybody ever did, you know. Everybody yeah. asks me, am I, am I geophysin? Are you geophysin? When are you using the ge You know, they, they have certain terminology now that they, they're yeah. familiar with. If you, you know? if you think of somebody, a, a visitor to Kilkenny, who comes into this building, yeah. And they're looking and they're learning and they're absorbing mm. all kinds mm. of information. I doubt if they're thinking, oh, that's archaeological. Yeah. Well, that's historical. Yeah. It's all about the past and it's all about the quality yes. of the experience that they have. Okay, let, let's talk about this building, right? Yeah. Uh, because you, you, were, you did an involvement in the, in the archaeological work here, didn't you? you, you, you a, a little bit. Yeah, yeah little right, bit. right. But you know, you know about it, right? Because this, I mean, this building is an amazing synthesis of history, archaeology and, and architecture. Uh, and it looks pretty seamless to me. Just coming in. I, I've never been here yeah. before, you know. It's fantastic. Um, Ed, do, do you understand about this, Edwin? Yeah. Um, have you got the mic here, uh, Nick? So, yeah, the question I was going to ask you is, uh, what was it like working with archaeologists? <laughs> yeah, as another uh, professional beginning with Arch, it, it uh, was really interesting. Maybe I'll just explain your role Sorry, in this, uh, this whole thing. My name is Evelyn Graham. I happen to be sister of Tommy Graham here. Uh, I was project <laughs> fix. I was a project architect on this project for the county council. So I liaised with archaeologists, one of them sitting here, Barry behind me, um, the the whole design team. I won't even go into the list of people, but I mean it was a huge collaboration. So there was no differentiation between archaeology, history. Uh, but were there historians involved? There was, there was. We, ha we had um, some historical research carried out for part of the, the content, the historical content that it, for the interpretation. But it was a complete, in inextricably linked, the whole thing. And what really brought it to life was the archaeology, the story behind the unpicking of the layers in the building and the site. And people around here, and, and it, it reached national news in August 2016, when 14 skeletons were uncovered just inside the gate, about a foot under the ground. And that excited the locals particularly. And it, it um, brought to life the ordinary people, as um, uh, Geraldine refers to, the democracy of, of the archaeology. Mm -hmm. Because this, this building and the graveyard was associated with the rich merchant families of Kilkenny and uh, the posh people, if you like, of the high town. But these poor poor women predominantly that were found, the skeletons that were found inside the gate, they were the poor servants who had died young and children. I thought they were historians it, looking for a job, but anyway. But, but it showed what, you know, the, the hard lives they led and uh, how they died and what they ate. And we, we mm. still have, haven't got the full details, mm. but we'll hopefully do a reconstructive project in time about, um, mm. about what they looked like and that. And that brought history to life and archaeology to life mm. for so many people. They just, just looked inside the gate. It was just a brilliant uh, window into another world mm. that people knew nothing about. And just going back to dendrochronology, that was another thing, if you just look above you, the roof is one of the best preserved 17th century roofs in the country. We had dendrochronology. We all learned a new word, dendrochronology, the, the analysis <laughs> of the timber. And that even told us about uh, the age of the timber, how it was, you know, where it was growing from the 1390s, it was felled in the in the 1600s, and people were just fascinated by the the detail without over analysing or over intellectualising the whole thing. And even this 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 uh, double effigy here, I remember the excitement when Colleen, the project uh, archaeologist, rang me on holidays to tell me that this had been uncovered, and it, there was no wholesale destruction. We preserved everything in situ and brought some of it up overground and we even changed the design to account for in the the Roth Chapel to leave the archaeology exposed and this was an opportunity to unpick the layers and leave it on view for everybody. And presumably you had to I was going to say make it up as you went along. I mean, you had to respond to the stuff that was found. So was oh, a, yeah, and a, I mean, the, the final account was great fun. I mean, you might as well have just put archaeology, archaeology, archaeology on the front cover of the final account and explaining that to auditors and local government officials. We just knew we were going to meet archaeology, and we said, 
told you so, but and they were saying, how, wh why did this cost so much? And we said, well, this is expensive. Are they archaeologists? Well, no, I mean we knew, uh, but I, I mean it added it added such value to the project <laughs> and what you see today. And I mean yeah. it, there's yet more to be learnt about it yeah. and uncovered and displayed. We've only sort of gotten yeah. some of it at yeah. the stage. And I think like for people like Fall to Ireland realise that now, that this is the great, you know, we were trying to work for some reason, they couldn't understand, you know, what could be done in Ireland to attract people here, you know. They thought it couldn't possibly be the archaeology or the monuments. And now the penny is finally dropping, that it's people are coming here to look at the, to look at the history. And they're starting now to put a bit of money into, into monuments around the country. But for years, they just didn't see what was in their face. Ian, could you talk a little bit about what this archaeological work here discovered? Like, I mean, what can we say then about these people? Well, Evelyn has touched upon a lot of it. Um, but uh, I mean, there are two things that always strike me about this building. Well, lots actually, more than two. But the, the skeletons that Evelyn mentioned at the front gate, um, they were the regular people that lived in Kilkenny. Yet if you read the Book of Ossuary, the, the Red Book, the White Book, the, the calendars of Inquisitions and so on, they're written from the point of view of the Burgesses, the property owners, the bishop that lived on one hill in Kilkenny, the butlers and their constables that lived in the castle. And they're, they're valuing their properties, they're changing properties, they're, they're doing deals, they're doing what that upper strata of society did. But in between, you had this world of, of, of lives that were nasty, brutish and short. And archaeology shows you that. And that's really what we saw in those excavations in 2016. The other thing that was really striking about this was this chapel, was, this church was built by William Marshall, around about 1200, we think. And a lot of this is, is original fabric. But as the, as the medieval period developed in Kilkenny, you had these major families, the Roths, the Archers, the Shees, um, and they start monopolizing and taking over the space. And what became public space for worship became their family chapels and the excavations, we had a hint of that from, from, from what was here before the excavations, we had a hint of that from the documentary records, but when Colleen started excavating over there, it was basically a mausoleum to the Archer family. Over here, it was another mausoleum to the, the, the Roth family and out the back, the She family went for broke altogether. They had their own chapel there as well. They monopolised this civic space, this space for ritual and it really tracks their their, 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 their rise to power, the merchant princes of Kilkenny in the Renaissance period, and you see just how much they're investing in their houses, their properties, their business empires, and their lives after death. And it's not archaeology, it's not history, it's all of those brought together. Mm. I think mm. that's the really important point mm. about it. Mm. Mm. Now, I just want to go back to this now thing of this back. The, the disciplines um, cooperating, right? I know, Sean, you said that uh, historians <laughs> will, will use archaeology as a source, right? But I don't see any great evidence of teamwork between historians and archaeologists at the professional level, right? In other words, like at, the, at the, what I might call the consumer level, people just want to learn about the past. But the way universities are structured, uh, the, the, two, the two worlds are, are separate. I mean, what, 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 am I wrong on that? Or am I right? Yeah, no, I think you are right. I mean, it's one of the problems, I suppose, is that historians have no doubt but that we are part of the humanities. But uh, archaeologists nowadays try to um, identify as, as a science. Uh, now, it's partly because there's more money in the sciences. So if you're, if you work in an archaeology department, if you work in a university nowadays, the powers that be, they're obsessed with getting research funding in. Yeah, if you don't generate research funding, you're failing, uh, no matter how good you might be at other things that, that you do. But research funding for the humanities in, in Ireland in particular is woefully uh, 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 deficient. But it is there a plenty for the sciences, any old rubbish that's, that can be classified as science, they will throw money at it because the, you know, the politicians and so on think that science is the future. So archaeologists have, from, from having been your Indiana Jones uh, type and, uh, and people having no doubt but that this person is, is basically a kind of a, a historian who's willing to get his hands dirty or her hands dirty, uh, they've now had to rebrand themselves as, as, as scientists. So they've drifted, they're starting to drift apart from, from the historical profession in that way. And that, that's a pity because, I mean, I think Geraldine and Ian would have to agree with me that, 
it is still the case. Now, obviously, it's different in prehistory where there are no mm, written yeah. records. Well, in, you're defunct. In this part of the world, uh, as opposed to uh, the um, uh, Greece and Rome and so on. But um, in the hist if you're an archaeologist of the historical era, you cannot be a good archaeologist without <coughs> being a good historian. You m and the best archaeologists, you know, if you think of... You know, your Con Manning or the, mm. you know, the late John mm. Bradley, people like that, those really top yeah. archaeologists, mm. they are phenomenal historians. Mm. And uh, it's a terrible pity sometimes when you see an archaeologist and it's looking good. What you're reading, what they're writing, and it looks like it's good. It looks like... Because all we want, any of us who are interested in the, in the past, when you read a book or an <coughs> article by somebody, you just want to know, can I rely on this? Mm. And if you discover that that person is an archaeologist who isn't actually grounded in the history and is m therefore making fairly fundamental errors, then it undermines uh, what, what you're looking for uh, in it. So, and as I was saying earlier, a historian can survive, depending on the, the subject matter that you're doing, he or she can survive without being um, a, a top archaeologist, but you can't be really good. I mean, Ian Doyle is a superb... He's, he's a bit of a cheat, actually, because his primary degree is in... Yeah. Your primary degree is in what, Ian? Go on, remind me. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's in history. It's not just in science, though, that the drifting away has taken place, because archaeology is so intimately linked with the building trade nowadays. Yes, I was, I was going to go on to that, that not, delicate subject. It's not, it's, it, well, I don't want to use the word tainted, but it's not as pure as, as history is. History, we do work in our offices, in our leather chairs, in our, uh, with our sherry, and, we, and we're not involved <laughs> in, the, in the grubby business of business. But certainly some of the best, you know, evidence ha has come out of things like long-standing long development. I'm just thinking of medieval Dublin, the fantastic research, you know, some of you might know that the kind of material that has come out of all that, those excavations on Temple Bar, yeah. I mean, that would never have come out without development. No, but you see, I mean, one of the problems, I feel very sorry for uh, archaeologists in, 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 especially at a, at, a, at a busy time. You know, now, now that they, we, you know, the, this, the Celtic tiger has started to purr again or whatever, archaeologists are getting very busy. Archaeologists are a great weather vane of the economy because the archaeology <laughs> the has to be yeah. done about two or three years before any development takes place, they develop or rings up an, ar an archaeologist and he says, is there any archaeology on that site or, or can I buy it and build uh, on it? So the archaeologists knew before the economists, two or three years before the economists, that we were heading for a crash because their phones stopped ringing. And I know I'm, I'm married to a, an archaeologist in the commercial sector as opposed to the state sector. Uh, and they knew likewise that, they were, that we were over the worst of the... Uh, of the crash when their phones occasionally started to ring, to ring. But now they're ringing all the time and they're incredibly busy because of all of the development that's taking place. But how can these archaeologists produce the, the lasting legacy of it? When they finish digging one site, they're mm. on to the next one. Mm. They don't, and they don't have, they might, there might be a theoretical budget for post-excavation work that they're to do, but they do not have the time to do it, and they're just moving on to the next uh, site and the next site and the next site, and it's lying in shoeboxes in their garage and in the skulls and the boots of people's cars and so on. And these stratigraphic reports are never getting written up because they're, 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 they are dog-eared notebooks in, in people's box room at home. But there are That's many all. that are getting written up. There are many good ones that are getting written up. Can, can yeah, I show no. you this? This is a monograph just published by Transport Infrastructure Ireland and I had coffee with one of their archaeologists lately. They've just published 32 volumes of their archaeological work. This is the 32nd. So what Sean is saying was true maybe a few years back. Things have changed. There's been a huge revolution in publishing and getting material out. So it, it's not all as bleak as that. And well, the, the, heritage, the Heritage uh, Council does have the uh, 
the uh, walk of shame on your website, though, doesn't it? Well, it's funny. We, 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 What's the walk what, of shame? It's all the unpublished excavations are on, are on, are listed on their, on their. All the major unpublished excavations are listed on the Heritage is, but I, Council I website. Audit, I audited it lately, and we're going to have to change the title. I, and I'm thinking of changing Not it from, the walk of shame from unpublished excavations <laughs> to, to great excavations because so many, <laughs> so many have been published now. Yes. Dune Angus is on it. That's published. Um, a lot of the Dublin materials on it, that's mm. published. Huge progress. That's the great thing. Just going back to what you said before, you know, that you know, when you leave a site, you still, you're still leaving it, even though you've dug it, you're still leaving it with drawings and finds and context sheets. Mm. And, it, and when they're done, you can still write, and many people, as you said, have written up other people's excavations mm. after they've left the site many years later. But it's so the record is still it there. Must be, you, have, you, you have probably done this. Have you written up other people's excavations? It must be very hard. If you have never set foot in the no. site and you no. didn't dig on it, how can you write up their stuff? I mean, some people leave their material in good order, mm. but others, it's chaos. I mean, presumably it's notes and it's scribbled notes that you can't even read. No, well, we don't. It's been many, many years since people wrote and scribbled notes. Yeah. It's all very structured. You won't go, most sites you go onto would have context sheets for every single layer, every single feature, you know, every single structure. That's and the theory, the, yes. yes. But it also creates its own problems because it becomes a mass of, of yeah. unprocessed material. Sorry, this lady there. Yeah, just, just over here, yeah. Whilst I see the methodology or whatever, the dynamic between you, I wonder could we move a bit into the 21st century about holistic, by being holistic and working mm. together? Because I'm finding it a bit annoying, actually, so uh, and tedious, because Harsh. history is about discourse, isn't it? About, as one of the gentlemen said, male, white, in the past, well-educated, looking at uh, not with the whole view which wasn't totally disinterested and now with modern technology and um, you know a lot of new ideas and particularly this building I'd like to talk about how we can work together and what the future is and whilst mm. we, you can appear arrogant and you know believe your um, profession is better. I, I find that just a bit annoying. I I, I, I'm, I'm trying to draw this out from them here, you see. I'm trying to find out, like, can I confess? Can, can, will, can will I? the historians and, and, and um, you know, like the cowboy and the farmer in Oklahoma, yes. will they ever be friends? But can I make a confession, though? Yeah. I mean, this is a... This is an opposition that's 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 it's set up natural. by the the hedge school, and yes. I can say safely say that I, I'm sorry that you're annoyed, but in a way that's a success for our because we were trying to set up an opposition, whereas none of us are as dogmatic as we would make out. You, just use, use the mic. Use the, sorry. sorry. Is, isn't it surely, to a degree, the energy is good initially because the a dynamic, but we have to go beyond that mm. into working together and mm. um, really listening. You know, after a while, it's about listening and hearing. Yes, mm. well, mm. Yes. both Sean and I have to listen to archaeologists all, <laughs> all the time, yeah. uh, all the time. And both of us, are, uh, we, I have to listen, listen to a story. Listen, listen and obey. Yeah. Sean, can I, I mean, I, I think that's a very good point, yeah, right? Very good and point. I want Excellent to, point. Sean, I just want to just pivot this discussion slightly, right? I mean, I know this is, uh, uh, that is, the whole influence of, of digital technology in the study of history. Because it's almost like it's, it's becoming almost like archaeology. In other words, take, for example, the um, Trinity College 1641 Depositions Project. Now, these were 8,000 um, witness or statements taken from people attacked uh, as a result of the, of the, the 1641 uh, rebellion. Uh, so for the first time, we now have a, a, a nicely you know, printed out, readable uh, copies of these things. Mm. And it's, it's now sitting there, and it's free access on, on Trinity's mm. website. And it's almost like it means anyone can go in there, professional mm. or otherwise, and analyze this stuff and literally dig through it, mm. uh, whereas previously that wouldn't have been possible. Mm. Now, does that, does that open up possibilities for a slightly more cooperative attitude on the part of historians, like working 
you know, as teams rather than as, as, as sad individuals in their leather chairs drinking their sherry. And, and this <laughs> sad and arrogant, apparently. Yeah. But, um, yeah, well, I suppose it does, yeah. Funnily enough, uh, I mean, his, the history um, is moving towards the digitization of, of primary materials. Uh, as Tommy says, setting up websites, mm. web resorts. We have done another one recently in, in Trinity where we, we, you know, in 1922 when they destroyed mm. the forecourts, mm. they destroyed hundreds of years of material. And uh, we were trying to reassemble them uh, in, in Trinity from copies that were sent, uh, that were scattered and, and sent elsewhere. And that is going to be an amazing resource for everybody in this uh, island and around the world because uh, people can uh, locate it. But funnily enough, um, for, as, as a historian who likes to use archaeological material and works with archaeologists closely on these matters, it is harder to get digital, dig, archaeological material digitally. You know, in other words, I can, um, I, in, from my uh, little box bedroom at home where I work, I can go online and I can find, you know, on Google Books and archive.org and so on, the 19th century and early 20th century books, entirely free, they're all they're available to me, history books and so on. Uh, and I can find there are lots of websites that are primary uh, archived, primary materials. There's comparatively little archaeological material that's available to me as a digitized resource, and that is not the fault of archaeologists, but it's the fault, I, I believe, of our state authorities who have starved our heritage services of resources for many years now, including the National Museum, mm -hmm. the, um, the National Monuments Service, uh, and so on, who are, you know, were desperately short-staffed, and uh, when they lose, there's a huge brain drain because of retirements over the years, and they're not being uh, replenished. And so the, 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 the types of, I mean, there are, I can go online and I can look up sites, but it, often the record is comparatively uh, limited. The amount of material that I can access is comparatively limited, so I wish there was more. But there's no lack of enthusiasm on the part of historians and archaeologists mm. to work together, mm. believe me. And I'm a member of a group, the Friends of Medieval Dublin, uh, which is comprised of historians and archaeologists mm. working together. Yeah, that's a good and example, all yeah. we're interested in is finding out about Medieval Dublin. Mm. And on Saturday the 19th of May we'll be having our 20th annual symposium, so I hope you'll come up to Dublin for the day, and you will hear a mixture of archaeological papers and historical papers working in harmony and heading off to the boozer afterwards to boot. So. I think I'd better say, I'll talk about websites, is that uh, Wardwell runs the, the excavations.ie, which is a fabulous source, although, like Sean, I do wish there was more uh, archive material in it, and the same is true but, for but your archae esteemed archaeological archaeology.ie. And I also might, I would also like to say Celt, which is uh, the late Donico Coran's uh, uh, website, yeah. in which there's all the early medieval sources. It just makes it makes early medieval uh, material available. And just to add to everyone that um, 30, years, 30 years of Archaeology Island magazine. Mm. is also available yes. yeah. digitally, oh. as is History Island, also available yeah. The great digitally. thing about JSTOR, which has the Archaeology yeah. Ireland in it, yeah. and has all the excavations and all the antiquaries journals and the, you know, so the JSTOR yes. is, I find that I don't even bother Fabulous. looking yeah. for a, a report because I don't know where anything is in our house, so the best thing to do yeah. is to go on JSTOR yeah. look, if I'm looking yeah. for something. And that has all the excavations and, you know, and mm. the proceedings, yeah. and so it's a fantastic source. Oh, is it just on, on, on you know, digital technology, is there a scope then for 3D digital technology to be used, particularly for archaeology? Because mm, it always struck fantastic. me that, you yeah. know, if you look at a, a report of a yeah, dig, yeah. it's pretty, well, it's literally flat, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. You don't, yeah. so is that, is that something that's developing? I think um, two, two things there. Um, have a look at heritagemaps.ie. Um, Sean, I don't yeah. know if you've seen it, but yeah. you'll find all those excavation reports, the unpublished ones from Dublin City, available free online. You can download them. They're, they're incredible. What, what else would you be doing on a winter's night? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, Tommy, then, I think you just have to learn to read plans and sections. I think that's the minimum, <laughs> that's the minimum basic requirement of working and, in this business. And secondly, have a look at the Discovery Programme's website. You will see oodles and oodles of 3D digital yeah. icons and images yeah. of high crosses, yeah. churches, mm. 
it's it's a new world. Certainly. So there is a there is a whole new world opening up there. Yeah, 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 the, the, yeah, the 3D yeah. icon project is fantastic. Yeah. The only the only issue with it is that there's so much. It takes up so much memory. These, you know, when, now that when you're doing laser scanning, they're literally taking millions of points in a couple of minutes. Mm. So so it's actually, you know, trying to access those can be quite difficult. But that's all being done in the clouds now. You know. Sean, I want to just come back to the, the, put the, the, the historians on the spotlight of one thing before we finish up, which is like the, the, you know, some people say that history at certain phases also masqueraded as a science, right? And we had the whole phenomenon of uh, historical revisionism, which in many cases became little more than propaganda for a particular political point of view. Um, so, you know, you, you, you've pointed up the, the shortcomings of, of archaeology, which may or may not be true. But isn't this one of the major problems of history and of history writing, that it, it can, consciously or unconsciously, be mere propaganda? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, it was, uh, it was all the fashion for a time to try to portray history as, as science. Mm. And there was a big movement in Ireland started, you know, we tend to think of the revisionists as being a phenomenon, revisionists with a capital R that began in the late 1960s and in the 1970s in particular, in reaction to the troubles in, in the North. But it actually began back in the 1930s, you know, the Dudley Edwards and, and uh, Theo Moody's and so on, to, because they believed that history was a science and you could therefore be scientific about your history, writing about the past. But it, I mean, it was a you know, fool's gold that they were looking for because we are human beings and none of us can look at the past objectively. Haven't, every one of us, when we open up a, a primary source to look at it, we're bringing ourselves to that and our own past experience and our biases and our prejudices and our loves and our hates and so on. And you have to be conscious of that. And mm. Owen McNeill had this fabulous phrase in his brilliant book, Phases of Irish History, and at the beginning of mm. it, that my history teacher, Jim Lydon, used to teach, used to, he used to always say to us in his, in his lectures, he used to quote this, um, neither apathy nor antipathy can bring out the truth in history. So in other words, you can't, you know, you can't be ap apathetic uh, and just as you can't, we all realize that you shouldn't be antipathetic when you're writing. You shouldn't be filled with hate if you're writing about, about the past. But you can't be apathetic. You have to be engaged with it. Because you're writing a human story, so you have to write it as a human being. And this is where, of course, as we were saying earlier, if, if we're harmony, we have, we have to be harmonious at <laughs> yes. the door. I mean, this is where archaeology, of course, absolutely brings out the humanity in it. Because you are, you know, to, to be able to lift up and hold in your hands a piece of the past mm. is the most, you know, it's one of the most mm. exciting mm. things. And of course, it's why the, 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 the one question that archaeologists throughout their entire life absolutely are asked from, from the first moment they begin to the moment that they, they, they're about to go into the grave, what's the best thing you've ever yeah. found? It, what's the best thing you've ever found mm. is what you're always asked because it, What's the best thing you ever the found? The best thing I ever found in an excavation apart was from, my apart husband. From. <laughs> <laughs> I paid which him husband? to say that. Which, which one? <laughs> <laughs> Ian, what about yourself? What about um, a Francis Bacon painting? You found a Francis Bacon painting? He, when he died, he bequeathed his, his, his archive, his, his studio to, to Hugh Lane in Dublin. And it goes to show the the use and practice and the methodology of archaeology. The studio was scientifically excavated. Um, we had a great time in Kensington um, recording and just figuring out the order and the structure, what looked like chaos of this man's studio. And his books were there, the things that he'd taken inspiration from, and it looked like a bomb site, but there was order in it. It was all spatially ordered. But when, when it's always on the last day, we were moving material and out popped the painting. Wow. And it was just it was That's incredible. not fair. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm just looking at the time here, guys. Uh, anyone else? Yeah, f just, just if you get the mic here, Nick. Uh, I would like to take issue with our moderator in that we have quite a number of eminent female historians who have written women into history, which the male historians uh, failed to do for quite a number of years. Can I also say that um, maybe 
because we have more female archaeologists is because they're better at teamwork. Hey, good one, Mary. <laughs> Multitasking. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah. Uh, Tommy, I think the most shocking revelation tonight is that Tommy Graham is Evelyn Graham's brother, which uh, some of us didn't know. But uh, just on the, going back to the issue about preservation by record, and I think it's a real struggle uh, in in a place like Kenny. Surely the issue of it being destruction rather than preservation, the alternative to that is is turning places like Kilkenny into effectively static museums where there can be no developing history for the future um, in terms of the way society changes and we have to strike that balance. Okay. Yeah. Oh, just hold on, just with the mic. No, no. That um, development has to go ahead. But I think you have to, we have to define what we mean by development. Does it mean destruction so that um, auctioneers, county councils and so on can get money because they're not funded properly? As has happened recently in Kilkenny in the case of the Central Access Scheme, where um, the, some work was carried out, on, uh, archaeological work was carried out and nothing was found until John Bradley, um, I think maybe Ian Doyle, and uh, Colleen went in with other people and found very significant um, archaeology, but it wasn't in the interest of development. So I think we have to be very clear about what development is and um, what we want for, for a town. And I think if we're saying that development is simply having houses for everybody over other people's dead bodies, mm. I, I don't accept that. Um, and also there were a lot of issues that arose in terms of the national monuments, the designation of national monuments, the ease with which uh, a county council can delist or um, destroy buildings or not protect buildings, and uh, the lack of legislation to support um, a city like Kilkenny, which is so full of archaeology and is being slowly destroyed in the name of development. Mm. Anyone on the, on the panel want to respond to that? Like, I mean, because that is a very difficult question to address. You know, how you, you, you balance the different needs of a society, you know, of a living society. Absolutely. I mean, you have to, to live is to change. And, you know, the, all landscape and even urban landscape and rural landscape is dynamic. But I suppose the thing to do is to try and make as informed decisions as, as possible and to prioritize what's of value, you know very early on but I mean you, you, you know to live is to change anyone else I'll just take a last question if anyone wants to come in if not um, I'm going to wrap up I, I think that this is typical of, of uh, head schools like, it's a bit like nuclear fission you know you send a particle and it, it explodes in, in, in various uh, directions uh, but certainly one thing it shows is that, that the interest amongst the, the general public in the past is there and it is up to the archaeologists and the historians um, either separately or together, and one would hope together, uh, cooperatively, that they would, they would uh, meet that demand and also interact with, with county councils, with planners, you know, and this, I mean, this again, I go back to this building, is, is such a perfect example of, of that synthesis, you know. So I, 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 hope, I, I think I'll finish on that uh, positive, uh, positive note. So I'd just like to thank our speakers here, uh, Sean Duffy, uh, Matthew Stout, uh, Ian uh, Doyle and Geraldine Stout and I'd like to thank you the audience in particular those people who uh, contributed to the discussion which will probably continue um, just like to say that the, uh, the next History Ireland Head School is in Belfast what, what today's Friday it must be Kilkenny Sunday is Belfast we're looking at the end of the First World War and the, the new uh, world order uh, so I'd like to thank you all for coming along and I hope to see you again at a head school in the future thank you thanks very much Thank you.